Turn, if you would, to the 25th chapter of the book of Matthew. Chapter 25 begins, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will be not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourself. And when they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him. The marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now if you're astute, you noticed that I just skipped chapter 24. Why did I do that? We're going to spend the next couple of weeks talking about the second coming. Those of you who have been here long enough have heard me say repeatedly, there's three things I will never teach. Parenting, marriage, and the book of Revelation. I have eight children who all seem to be reasonably well-adjusted, and I don't have a clue why. I have been married for 36 years, and I don't have a clue why she still puts up with me. I don't know nothing about nothing with regard to marriage, parenting, or the book of Revelation. But one of the problems that I run into in my teaching, where I actually do go verse by verse by verse, sometimes you can't escape it. Sometimes you have to talk about marriage when you're dealing with Ephesians. You just have to do it. So I can't get out of it. If you remember, in last week's lesson, we ended Jesus' discussion with the Pharisees. Woe to you, you hypocrites. And he gave seven reasons why they were in deep trouble. And then he makes a comment that Jerusalem is in trouble. He is going to leave it desolate. Then it starts chapter 24, and we'll get back to that in just a moment, for a discussion because the disciples want to know when is this going to happen? When is, are you going to come back? When is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? When are all these things going to occur in history? And he's going to give them some information regarding how to know or what to look for in event this is coming. Now, I'm going to do something weird. I'm going to tell you up front what the conclusion of today's lesson is. Because I know the lesson you want, and you're not going to get it. Two months ago, two months ago, someone in this class said, I can't wait to get to chapter 24 and 25 and have a detailed discussion of the second coming. And I told him, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> but let me tell you the conclusion of today's lesson. Number one, 
Jesus is coming back. Physically, at some point in history, he's going to come back. This is not an allegory. It's not a, well, if you feel him in your heart, he's back. No, at some point in time, Jesus is physically going to return to the earth. Number two, nobody knows when, except God. And in this passage we're going to study, it's going to allude to the fact that Jesus himself as a human being on earth at that point in time, didn't know. Nobody knows when. So how or why do we spend so much time trying to speculate? I don't know if you remember this. I actually have the book at home somewhere. I couldn't find it. 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. (laughs) Did you all read this? World War III starts on October 3rd, 1988. To the best of my knowledge, that didn't happen. World War IV starts on May 1st, 1992. And to the best of my knowledge, that didn't happen. Why would we write an entire book about the day that it's going to happen when we can't know the day? Now, his argument, this is how he gets around it, his argument is that since there's lots of time zones, you don't technically know the day even though we know the day. Because he has the date in here. When it's going to happen. About 30 years ago, I was at a book discussion group with a bunch of people at work, and one day, one of the guys brought a friend of his, a coworker. So we discussed the book, whatever book it was, I have no idea. And at the end of it, he said, do you want to know, do you want to see a map of what the United States is going to look like in five years? And we said, sure. So he pulled out of his briefcase this high-gloss map, well-produced. California was gone. Now, some of you may think that's a good thing. We won't go there. (laughs) The Mississippi was 50 miles wide. The Florida, most of Florida was gone, and there was this huge landmass in the middle of, well, it's actually the Caribbean, but it was kind of into the Atlantic. That was Atlantis. And we kept waiting for, isn't this funny? You know, the, the ha-ha, it never came. In his thinking, the tribulation had started the year before, and in six years, Of ever-increasing earthquakes, most of everything west of the Rocky Mountains was going to be gone. Atlantis was going to reappear. It was kind of this mix of the book of Revelation and Nostradamus. It was just odd. But, but, we need to remember that Jesus is going to tell us nobody knows the day and time. Point number one, he is coming back. Point number two, we don't know when. Point number three, when he does, there's going to be judgment. We are going to judge those who have the oil in the lamps, those who don't have the oil in the lamps. And point number four, we are called to be prepared. We know he's coming back. We don't know when. There's going to be a judgment, and we are called to be prepared. I want to emphasize this because 
I don't believe that what Jesus is asking us to do is spend all of our effort trying to guess what day of the week Jesus is going to come. He's calling us to be prepared. And what does it mean to be prepared? It means to be doing the work of the master. We're going to talk about that at length. So, that's the conclusion of today's lesson. You can jump back to chapter 24. Before we start this, we're going to have a very brief theology discussion. And when I say brief, I mean brief. Eschatology is the study of the second coming, the end times. What does that look like? And it is a interesting, full of lots of opinions, full of lots of ideas, field of study. But to understand it, we have to understand a few major events. We'll just take these in almost random order. Number one, Revelations 20 talks about a thousand-year period of time, and that thousand years is known as the millennium. That's tough, isn't it, right? Thousand, millennium, okay. There is an event called the millennium. Number two, there is an event known as the tribulation. The tribulation is going to be a time of intense suffering, wars, famine, earthquakes, and other events. Chapter 24 of the book of Matthew spends the first half of it talking about the tribulation. The third event is the rapture. The rapture is the taking up of the believers to meet and be with Jesus. So, if we look at those three events, we can rearrange them in a variety of different ways to get a different chronology. For example, there are those who are known as amillennialists. An amillennialist believes that at the crucifixion, at the resurrection, after Jesus ascending into heaven, the millennium started. And we are living in that right now. It is also referred to as the church age. The fact that it's been more than a thousand years, all they say is, well, the thousand is just kind of a metaphor for a large number. There is a large time period, and that's what we're living in right now. Well, what about all this horrible stuff we're going to talk about in Matthew 24? That all happened. It all happened in 70 A.D. when the Romans took Jerusalem and not a stone was left standing, as we're going to see in this chapter. That is known as a-millennialism. A, not, millennium. There is no separate millennium. The second viewpoint is known as post-millennialism. Okay? Jesus died. He was resurrected. He went to heaven. In 70 A.D., everything was destroyed, and now here we are in the church age, and at some point in time, things are going to get better and better and better, and we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are going to bring in the kingdom of heaven on this earth, and things are really going to be great. And at the end of the millennium, Christ is going to return post 
millennium. After the millennium, Christ is going to return. Now, you and I sit there and go, well, that doesn't make sense. Have you read the newspaper recently? But it's interesting because it's a very optimistic viewpoint. And in times of history, when people started thinking, ah, life is getting better and better and better, it was very appealing. There are post-millennialists today. I have talked to them. I had an acquaintance once who was a post-millennialist, and they are very optimistic about the future. I have a little trouble being optimistic about the future. Maybe that's just me. So we have amillennialists who don't believe in an actual millennial. We have post-millennialists who believe that Jesus is going to return afterwards and that there's going to be this period where things are really good here on earth. Position number three are known as pre-millennialists. There is a thousand-year reign of Christ, and the only reason there is a thousand-year reign of Christ is because Christ has come before that pre-millennial. Christ has come before that, and Christ is sitting on the throne of David, and the world is a great place. So we have crucifixion, resurrection. Yes, Jerusalem got destroyed in 70 A.D., the temple is going to be rebuilt and into, when Christ returns, the millennial. Millennium, okay? Have I lost all of you all yet? <laughs> it's going to get worse. That is traditional pre-millennialism. But the other event is the rapture, excuse me, the tribulation. According to pre-millennialism, the tribulation occurs right before the return of Christ. So, things are not going to get better and better. In fact, they're going to get worser and worser. Is that a word? They're going to get so bad, as we're going to see in today's passage, if God didn't say enough and just stop it, nobody would survive. So, before the thousand years is the seven-year tribulation. Now, are believers going to be present during the tribulation? Once again, there are three views with this. There are those who are pre-tribulational. You ready for this? Pre-tribulational, premillennialist. They believe that the rapture occurs at the beginning of the tribulation. And the believers who are present on the earth at that time will be taken up into heaven and will not suffer through the tribulation period. Our church is a pre-tribulation, pre-millennialist church. But there's two more positions. There are those who believe that the rapture occurs at the middle of the tribulation. We could have a long discussion of this, but I told you we weren't going to do it, right? <laughs> they believe that at the beginning of the tribulation, maybe some of the really astute believers were taken home, but in the middle of the tribulation, all the rest of the believers are taken home. And then, of course, if we have to complete the cycle, there are those who believe that the rapture will occur at the end of the tribulation. 
which is kind of interesting because basically they're going up and Jesus is coming down. But, you know, actually that doesn't, isn't that odd because the picture was in an ancient uh, city, if the king is coming to visit, the people would go out to meet them and escort him in. And that's what they believe the rapture is. So, those are the different frameworks around which we can hang the events of chapter 24 of the book of Matthew. As I said, our church is pre-tribulational, pre-millennialist. What that means is that we believe that most of what happens in chapter 24, we're not around to see. And that's a good thing. But wait a minute, doesn't it talk about believers during the tribulation? Yes. Even if the believers are taken away, the Word of God is still present in the world, and some people are going to look at the events and go, shoot, something's happened, what should I look at? They will find the Scripture, and they will become believers during the tribulation. So, I would ask for questions, but it would scare the bejeebers out of me. <laughs> Chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. They're walking out of Jerusalem. Jesus had just made some comment about leaving Jerusalem desolate. And they're kind of trying to figure this out. And they turn to Jesus and say, look at that temple. Isn't it magnificent? And it was. It was an impressive structure. And remember, we're not dealing here with Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. This is the temple that Herod rebuilt in order to impress the people. Okay? So this is not Solomon's temple. In fact, if anything, this is probably larger in structure, although maybe not as, in, uh, as decorated with gold and other fine metals. So they're walking out and they're going, isn't this impressive? Isn't this cool? And they're trying to convince Jesus, what are you talking about? All this desolation stuff, this thing's going to last forever. Now, this brings us to an interesting point. We, as human beings, get so wrapped up in whatever entity we live in, whatever entity we're involved in, and we begin to think that this has to survive forever. It doesn't. St. Augustine wrote his most famous work, The City of God, because Rome had been sacked and the people were going, how can this be? Rome is the center of the universe and it was just sacked. And Augustine had to say, you know, there is the city of man and it comes and it goes and it ebbs and it flows. But there is the city of God that exists forever. This is what the disciples right here are wrestling with. See these magnificent structures. Surely they have to stay around forever. 
And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Nope, I missed the point. Up here. But he answered them, you see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. All of this magnificent structure that you see is going to be totally destroyed. And guess what? That's going to happen in 70 A.D. And guess what? It's going to happen again. Let's keep reading. As he sat at the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. We have three questions here, or two, depending on how you look at it. When are these events that you're talking about going to happen? The destruction of Jerusalem. When are you coming back? And when is the end of time? Now, they were of the opinion that these three events would be simultaneous. There were prophets who would talk about the destruction of Jerusalem and the return. That's where they got it from. What Jesus is going to do is he's going to pull these three questions apart and he's going to separate it for them. He's, they ask him this privately. It's like, okay, we've just had this huge meeting with all the crowds, with all the Pharisees, with everyone present. And now they turn to Jesus and go, Psst, what did you mean when you said that all of this is going to be destroyed? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. His number one instruction is to not be deceived. What were our four points? Jesus is coming back. Nobody knows when. There's going to be a judgment. And be prepared. What is the first point about being prepared? Don't be deceived. What are the things that deceive us? Well, in this particular case, he spells it out. There are going to be those who say, I am the Messiah. In fact, it's interesting because in a moment, he's going to say, there's going to be people who say, come on out here. We found the Messiah. He's out here in the woods. He says, don't go. Why? Because when Jesus, the true Messiah, returns, everybody's going to know it. When Jesus came the first time in a manger in Bethlehem, it was kind of a hidden event. There were no angels, trumpets. There was none of that. When he comes the second time, everybody's going to know it. So here is the observation. If somebody has to convince you that it's true, it's not true. When it happens, you will know that the second coming is coming. How 
else are we deceived? Well, we can be deceived by believing there is no second coming. And there are lots of people here today in this world who live that way. They believe Jesus left and he's not coming back. And the best we can do is have his spirit in us. We will read the Bible. We will mimic him. We will be like Jesus. We will be good people. And that's the end of it. We are deceived if we believe that he's not coming. We also are deceived if we believe we know when he's coming. Why? It's going to tell us in just a moment. If the master had known when the thief was coming, he would have been prepared. Guess what? We're supposed to be prepared all the time. And this is what bothers many of us. It does. Let's just face it. For 2,000 years, almost, the Christian church has lived in anticipation of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And there are those who think, isn't that rather foolish? After 2,000 years, shouldn't we just give up on it? No. We should be living our life every day in the idea that right now, Jesus is going to be coming, and would I want Jesus to be seeing me doing this? I am mad at my neighbor. Do I want Jesus to see me when, I come, when he comes back being mad at my neighbor? The answer is no, so I shouldn't do that. We should live our lives in anticipation, not just, oh, well, I've got four more hours before he comes. I'm going to goof off for three, and at the end, I'm going to be ready. No. We are to be ready. How are we deceived that there is another Christ that he's not coming back, or that he's coming back and I know when so I can live my life any way I want to between now and then. That is deception. We as human beings are easily deceived. We want some concrete answer. I want somebody to tell me that Jesus is coming back on such and such a day in 1988. We are to be prepared every day of our lives. You're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be earthquakes. Kingdoms are going to fight against kingdoms. Observation number one. How many years in human history have there been that have had no wars? I actually read the number. I think it's a two-digit number like 17 years or something. I don't remember the number. We've had wars. We've had earthquakes. We've had all these things. So if these are the sign of the second coming, haven't we seen the sign? Well, yes and no. Which brings me to point number five of the conclusion, if I really was going to cover point number five. If we cannot know the day, if we cannot know the time, why did Jesus bother telling us this stuff in the first place? You know, it's like, I'm going to tell you half of a secret, but I'm not going to tell you all of the secret. 
Why did he bother? Well, you know the answer to this question because we're supposed to be prepared. We're supposed to be anticipating the second coming. But there's actually another piece of it, which is he tells us these things so we won't be shocked. There's an old quote that says, we don't study history to predict the future. We study history so the future will not shock us. Can't you imagine? You're an early disciple. Jesus has gone home. It's been dozens of years. And you all of a sudden get caught up in an earthquake. <gasps> How can God allow this to happen to me? This is a shock. No, it's not. He's telling us that these things are going to happen. It shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't destroy our faith that there are wars and rumors of wars, that kingdoms are fighting against kingdoms, and that there's earthquakes, which is what the people were, the Christians in Rome were struggling with, which is what prompted Augustine to write the city of God. How can this be? And Jesus is telling us, this is what life is going to be like. Now, having said that, we've had wars and we've had rumors of wars. We've had bad wars and we've had smaller wars. I didn't say good war. I wouldn't go that far. But there's going, to become a time, there's going to come a time when there's going to be a war of such intensity it is going to shock all of us. Except for the fact that some of us may not be here. Good thing. There are going to be earthquakes. There have always been earthquakes. There's even occasionally earthquakes in Texas. But there's going to be a time when there are real, real large earthquakes, and we're going to look at that and go, where's God and all this stuff going on? And God's saying, this isn't the giving of the birth. These are the labor pains leading up to the giving of birth. Do not be led astray. Be ready for the difficulties that are going to happen. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Once again, if you believe, as our church believes, in a pre-tribulation rapture and a pre-millennial return of Christ, what we're dealing right here is with is life in the tribulation. These are the believers who accept Christ in the middle of really bad times. And guess what? Really bad times often do lead people to search for answers, and often they recognize that that answer is Jesus Christ. So there are going to be those who accept Jesus in the midst of the tribulation, and guess what? They're going to be persecuted. Why? 
because people have always persecuted believers. Why? Because Jesus came into the world as the light and, as John tells us, the world loves the darkness more than the light. When things are going really bad, people want to blame someone. So Nero can blame the Christians. We can blame the Jews. We can blame somebody all of the time. And things are going to get progressively worse during the tribulation. And guess who they're going to blame? All those other people ran away, the rapture. We don't know where they went. They went to heaven. We don't know what they're doing. They're having a grand time. <laughs> we don't know where they ran off to, but it's got to be their fault. And you are believing the same things they believed, and you're still hanging around. Therefore, it must be your fault. So we're going to persecute you. You will be put to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Not the most pleasant of events. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate each other. There's going to be Christians, so-called during the tribulation, who think, okay, bad things are happening, I'm going to cling to something, but the moment clinging to Christ gets hard and difficult, they're going to fall away from the faith. And at this point, we're not going to have a discussion about whether they were saved to begin with. My answer would be no, they weren't. Once again, we as a church and I believe that once you are truly saved, you cannot lose your salvation. But it is quite possible for you to join a church like this, do all kinds of great looking things, and at the end of the day, find that you're not really a believer. There are those who follow Christ because they think he has an answer. And the moment that difficult times come, they fall away from the faith. And because lawlessness will increase, that's an interesting phrase, lawlessness will increase. What does that mean? Whenever the Bible wants to talk about times that are really bad, what it tells us is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I think it's good if I do this today, so I'm going to do that today because you know what? There isn't anybody bigger than me. Lawlessness will increase. It's what can I get away with? Now, an interesting aside here. We have talked repeatedly throughout Lessons Forever about the idea of God's common grace. Remember the verse says, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. There are certain things that happen to believers and unbelievers that are, in fact, part of God's grace to humanity. That's a good thing. And then... The flip side of it, we talk about special grace, which is the grace that actually saves us. Part of God's common grace to all humanity is the presence of believers in the world today. Why? Why? Because we as believers keep the lawlessness down. You go, wait a minute, 
I read in the newspaper last week about some Christian who did something really bad. That's true. We are all sinners. We're all, all in need of God's forgiveness on a daily basis. But as a general rule, the presence of the church in the world today puts a damper on how bad things could be. And you go, wait a minute, things are pretty bad. Yeah, they are. But they could be a lot worse. And as soon as those believers are removed from the picture as part of the rapture, all of a sudden, the world says, hey, the adults are gone. Let's have a party. And lawlessness will increase. It is as if God is saying that restraint that I put on you is being removed. Go do everything that you want to do. Why would he allow them to do that? Because he's giving them what they want. What does Romans chapter 1 say? He gave us over to the desires of our heart. And that's what we're going to see in the tribulation period. As the restraints of God are removed from this earth, lawlessness will increase all the more. No matter how bad you think it is today, it's going to get worse. Lawlessness will increase and the love of many will grow cold. Now, is this love of God? Hmm, maybe, could be. Is it love for each other? Yes, probably. Well, let's just get those mean, wicked Christians out of the way and we can all be nice to each other because we know, right, that it is religion that separates people and it's religion that causes all the problems in the world today. You can read this. No. Why? Because every one of us is a fallen creature. Every one of us if left to our own devices with the constraints and restraints removed from us, won't do great things like Rousseau said we would. We're going to go do anything. And one of the things that's going to be missing from the world is love. Actual concern for the good of the other. That's what love is. And what does the world look like when that's removed? It's going to be bad. You get this picture, right? It's going to be bad. Lawlessness will increase. Love will decrease. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. At that time, even in the midst of the most difficult times available, the gospel will be shared around the world. There are going to be those who, at the threat of their life and at the actual cost of their life, will continue to spread the gospel. They're going to be a minority. They're going to be in trouble. They're going to be hated. But if they endure to the end, they will be saved. That's the promise. These are the believers who became believers during the tribulation. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. You do understand, right? 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in, in that day. Now, if you are a post-millennialist and an amillennialist, you believe that this passage right here is dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. The Romans are going to come, the Romans are going to get ticked off, and the Romans are going to destroy the city. It is interesting, if you want to get involved in history, um, the Jews were actually fighting each other, and um, they invited the Romans, one of the sides invited the Romans to come help. Bad idea. Never invite the Romans to come help. Just a general principle of life. And they did, and they stayed. That's where we were when Jesus showed up. The Romans were in control of Jerusalem and all the countryside. But eventually, they're gonna, people are going to revolt against the Romans. Oh, we can fight the Romans. We're tough. God is on our side. We can reject the Messiah and not suffer any consequences from it. Isn't that what Jesus told them? No, you can't do that. You cannot reject the Messiah and still expect to receive the blessings of God. So Jerusalem is going to be surrounded. They're going to fight for a good long time. And finally, it's going to be destroyed. There is some discussion about whether the general wanted to save Jerusalem, but the individual soldiers were so ticked off they just ransacked the place. I don't know. It was destroyed. Following that were the events at Masada. I think you're familiar with that. They made a TV miniseries about it years ago, where the remaining Jews were on top of the mountain, and the Romans built a siege ramp up there, and at the end, the Jews killed themselves rather than being captured by the Romans. There are those who believe that this passage deals with that. And I might say there's a case to be made for that. If I were an amillennialist or a postmillennialist, I could look at this passage and go, see, that happened. We believe that it's going to happen again. In the tribulation, there's going to be a horrible time, and all of a sudden, we're going to say, it's time to get out of Dodge. And when it's time to get out of Dodge, don't sit there and pack your fine china in a bag and take it with you. Leave it. When it's time to go, it's time to go. That's what he's telling them right here. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation. There's the word right there that we've been talking about over and over again. And if those days, uh, tribulation such as has not, been, has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. That's how we know that this war and natural disasters are of such a magnitude that the wars that we're acquainted with today will seem minuscule in comparison to it. The world has never seen anything like it. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. If the tribulation went eight years, ten years, what 
Jesus is telling us is that no one on the earth would survive. We have enough weaponry on this earth right now to destroy all of humanity several times over. We could do that. And Jesus says there's going to be a limit even to the depravity of humanity. Back to Romans chapter 1. We wanted to worship things and not the Creator, so God gave us over. We wanted to chase after immoral sexual activity, so God gave us over. He let us do these things. He let us do these things, and He let us do it. And at some point, He's going to say, enough. Do not think that God is not still at work. Do not think that you can continue a life of depravity with no consequences. That is true for us today, but there's going to come a time in history when God says, I gave you what you wanted. You wanted a world apart from me. I'm going to give it to you. And after seven years, he's going to say, enough. Stop. Because if he didn't say enough, we would literally destroy all of humanity. And he's not going to allow that happen. So, back to the beginning. What is the conclusion of today's lesson? We're out of time. We're going to pick up right here next week. Number one, Jesus is literally, physically, at some point in time, coming back to earth. Number two, we do not know when. Number three, at the end of the age, there's going to be judgment. And number four, since there's going to be judgment, we are called to be prepared. And if you want to leave today and Google on 88 reasons why the rapture is going to occur in 98, and you're going to study all the details so you can figure out what day it's going to happen, more power to you. It's a lot of fun. Go do it. But if you're doing that instead of doing the work of the Holy Spirit, you're being distracted. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word will endure. Thank you that you will return. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.